This is the podcast for God's Honest Truth. These are stories that are told by members of First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Each time we get together, we have a theme, and the members of our church tell stories based around that theme. I hope you enjoy. Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you to our God's Honest Truth storytelling night. Once a quarter, we get together and we have members of our community tell stories for the evening. And tonight, our theme is Welcome to the Real World, stories about growing up and seeing things differently. Tonight, what's interesting is that uh, when I put this out there to everybody and I said, you know, who would like to tell a story, I had an all-female cast. No men wanted to tell a story on this particular evening. So clearly growing up uh, was something that's not something that a lot of men want to talk about. But I'm so thankful that we have uh, a number of wonderful women who are willing to come up here and to talk about their stories. The reason why we put this together is because most of the time what you get to hear is from me uh, when I'm up here. And I feel like in order to really have a sense of community, we take time together to learn about each other's stories. And so it takes a lot of courage, a lot of bravery for everybody to come up here and tell their story, and so I know that you want to hear what they have to say. Following our event tonight, there will be a reception out in the narthex, so please take some time to go out and talk to our storytellers afterwards. Although Katie Allen wanted to tell me, told me specifically to tell you that if you have children in her program, you need to get them before you go to the reception. <laughs> I will remind you of that again at the end, just in case you might forget about that. So. Without further ado, I would like to call up Allison Harold. She's our first storyteller for the evening with her story, Minuses and Pluses. Please welcome her to the stage. Okay. So the stage has been set for some storytelling of some unique and personal experiences. As Alex said, I've titled mine Minuses and Pluses because there are elements of both in my life. The, some of the negative stories may be hard to hear, I know, but believe me, they're balanced out in the end. But I have to start with some negative stories because really some of my earliest memories are of the negative aspects. Um, the first one is that my I knew my parents did not love each other. Um, it was a second marriage for both. My dad had been widowed. My mom was divorced and had a little girl. And I think they wanted to give marriage a second try. By all accounts, it was a whirlwind courtship, but sadly, it didn't work out for either of them. The second negative, which was much more impactful, is that both my parents were alcoholics. And I saw on a daily basis how they drank to excess from the moment they walked in the door after work till they went to bed at night. They liked the effect of drinking on an empty stomach, so dinner time was pushed way back, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. My sister and I couldn't handle that, so we would be handed plates, and she and I would just sit by ourselves in the dining room. Holidays were always the hardest because my parents started drinking with gusto about noon. And by the time uh, family members would have assembled for the holiday meal, I likely as not would have seen my dad reach over for something and 
fall on his face. And I would have seen my mom at the dinner table literally unable to get her fork to her mouth. Um, a prayer was said in our family three times a year, Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, and Easter dinner. And it was always the same prayer. It was in French. It was something my mother had learned as a child. None of us could understand a word of it. And believe me, it did not evoke any feelings of thankfulness or grace. My parents liked to have dinner parties with their friends. And as I was a little older, when they were hosting, I would often go into the kitchen afterwards and clean up all the dishes and wash up. And I think it was my way of putting a little order into my life. And the third negative is slightly different. I wasn't aware of this until I was probably in my early teens. But it was that my dad was basically unsuccessful in his career in sales. So money was always a, an issue in our family. And we never owned any property. We never had a home. We just rented apartments, which is no big deal. The impact, impact on me was that I realized that my dad could never afford a divorce. He could never manage two apartments. So there would be no change in our family structure. Now, the result of all this is that I grew up wanting to fast forward right to adulthood because I wanted to do it better. And I thought I knew how to do that. Many little girls grow up dreaming of growing up to be a movie star or an astronaut or president of the United States. I grew up wanting to be a wife and a mom. My childhood fantasy was that on my way home from school one day, I would find an abandoned baby in a park under a bush, and I would be allowed to take it and raise it. And that was my happily ever after story. Luckily, I was able to experience my dreams of marriage and motherhood. My first semester of my freshman year in college, I met Mr. Wright, or as you know him around church, Bob. <laughs> this fall, we will celebrate our 48th wedding anniversary. We had three kids together in five years, uh, a boy and two girls, and it was everything I hoped parenthood would be. We were able to do the things I thought families should do. We had dinner together every night. We had vacations. We had family traditions, family jokes. We shared a lot of love, a lot of laughs. We were not a perfect family by any means, but I don't think there is such a thing as a perfect family, to tell you the truth. But we were a strong family, and we remain so. But I. I don't want to leave the impression that because I said I would do things the opposite of my parents, that I was therefore a good mother. Because I think that a lot of kids growing up will say they're going to do things differently, and they end up just repeating the same patterns and behaviors. But I had a wonderfully positive experience that showed me that things could be quite different. Now, as background to this, Bob graduated from college in 1968, which, as you can imagine, meant that within a few days or a week, he got a letter from his draft board. He was reclassified re 1A, so thus began his time in the Army. And a year later, when I finished school, he was preparing to ship off to Vietnam. And there was no 
way I wanted to go back and live with my parents. So I asked my aunt and uncle if I could live with them. And they said yes, and they opened their hearts and they opened their doors to me. And I had a wonderful year. Bob, not so much, but I did. <laughs> um, I, my aunt and uncle lived on a farm in central Kentucky. And I had visited them frequently, but being with them for an entire year gave me a whole different perspective and I witnessed a lot of wonderful things. First of all, I saw strong, love-filled marriages. I was surrounded with adults who were sober and I could rely on not to embarrass or disappoint me. There were three generations of our family on the farm and I was able to mix it up with all three and it was a wonderful intergenerational relationship that was a joy to me. But most important of all, for the first time in my life, I had a positive female role model. This was my Aunt Tootie. Now we're talking the South, her name was really Catherine, but she was always called Aunt Tootie. She was easily old enough to have been my grandmother, but she was to me a grandmother, a mother, an aunt, and a friend. She was a very highly accomplished woman. She played piano, she played viola, she was always knitting and working on stitch projects. She had a full-sized loom upstairs and she wove fabric. She churned her own butter. She was always baking cookies to keep her cookie jar filled. She played a mean game of Scrabble. She read her Bible every day. She attended church every week. And she talked to me. And she listened to me. And she confided in me. These were eye-opening aspects of adulthood. And it was wonderful for me. Aunt Tootie also showed me the value of a faith community. I went to church with her every week and I saw how she greeted and was greeted by friends and acquaintances. And I saw how she took note if somebody was ill or needed some support. And I saw that when she talked with people, she genuinely, truly was interested in them and cared about them. I also loved watching how she related to her grandkids. She was always open to them. She would teach this one to play piano and this one to knit. She would read to and with them, depending on ages. She would always be available for a board game or a card game. I got included in this that year I was there and it was just so much fun. She loved each one of the grandkids and she was so proud of them. And she really was a role model for me. And I like to say she helped make me the person I am today. I'm excited to say that this summer, Bob and I and our three kids and their spouses and all eight of our grandchildren, ages one to 11, are going to make a visit to the farm. There are now four generations there and I'm really excited that the youngest generation of our family will get to know their relatives and have a bluegrass experience. I'm really thankful that my grandkids don't have the kind of negatives to overcome that I did because they've got wonderful parents. I'm very thankful as well for Aunt Tootie in my life and I'm very thankful that by example, she showed me that by listening and opening your heart, 
you can make a huge difference in someone's life. Thank you. So next, I would like to welcome up Denise Byhofer, and her story is called Straight Lines, Curvy Lines, and Open Doors. Please welcome Denise to the stage. I spent most of my growing up years in a suburb of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And on any given night in the early 70s, you might have seen my dad, a Greyhound bus driver, sitting at the kitchen table, poring over his log books. The driver's log back then was a little bound book that had pages separated by carbon paper. And I admired his focus as he took his little six inch ruler and his pen and he meticulously charted out his sleeping hours, working hours, on-duty, off-duty hours in that little logbook. For all I knew, he was designing the next big skyscraper. Across the room, you might have seen my mom at the ironing board, equally focused on meticulously pressing sharp creases into my dad's uniform shirts. Now, if there was a dry cleaners or a, or a laundry that performed that service back then, it must have been terribly expensive and an unnecessary luxury when my mom could do it better herself. Now, speaking of unnecessary luxuries, we did not have an automatic dishwasher. And my mom said, I don't need one. I don't need one. I have two dishwashers, Denise and Rhonda. So Rhonda is my uh, sister, she's two years younger than me, and we have a third sister, Deidre, who is eight years younger. I'm pretty sure by the time Deidre got old enough to wash dishes, my parents got a real dishwasher. <laughs> so uh, I'm very, very proud of my parents, and I'm eternally grateful for their tenacity and their support and encouragement over the years. They started out from a bit of a deficit. My mom was 17, pregnant with me, my dad had just turned 20 when they got married. But they worked hard, they persevered over time, they raised three daughters, and this summer they'll celebrate in August their 60th wedding anniversary. So I think that's a pretty good, pretty good accomplishment for two young kids. So I graduated from high school in 1977, one of three valedictorians in my senior class. My parents didn't have the means to send me to college, and I didn't know at the time that there were ways to get a college degree that didn't involve going off to university on your parents' dime. And interestingly enough, the counselors at my high school, they really weren't focused much on college planning. So because my parents hadn't gone to college, I really didn't have a lot of direction. Unfortunately, the biggest influence on my life at that time was my high school boyfriend. As you might imagine, he strongly discouraged me from going away to college, even a junior college. So I did what a lot of other girls in Oklahoma did back then. I married him. Now, I knew that was a mistake from the time I saw the heartbreak cross my parents' faces when we went in to tell them of our plan. And again, when just before walking down the aisle, my dad whispered in my ear, 
it's not too late to leave by the side door. <laughs> he really did. <laughs> I didn't have the courage to walk away. Um, so the marriage lasted not quite two years before we divorced. It could have ended much earlier. Uh, and on a couple of occasions, it actually did. But once I made that commitment, I felt like I had to do everything I could to make it work. So I went to work in the county assessor's office. He got a job in a factory. We bought a house together. But truthfully, he wasn't really done partying. And if I'm completely honest, neither one of us, we both had a lot of growing up to do. Um, thankfully, we were both smart enough to not bring a child into the picture. So after I got divorced, I went to work in the district attorney's office. And I started paralegal school at the junior college. I moved over to a, a law firm uh, in Tulsa and, and worked as a legal secretary for the four plus years that it took me to get my associate's degree in paralegal studies. Once I graduated, I became a paralegal at the firm, looking at the lawyers going, oh, I could do that, I could do that. But there I was. And then on December 10th, 1986, as I was wrapping up my work for the day at the office, um, my friend Darla called, and she said, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, why? She said, oh, no, you, you don't know. You haven't heard. So she was crying, and she proceeded to tell me that my then 26-year-old boyfriend, Rick, had died in a plane crash earlier that morning. Now, Rick was a pilot. He was flying right seat in a corporate jet, and they crashed into the side of a mountain uh, during a snowstorm in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And I really don't remember much else about the conversation with Darla. I only remember that someone offered to drive me home. It took a while to recover Rick's remains from that snowy mountainside in Massachusetts. But on December 17th, we had a lovely celebration of his entirely too short life. I was amazed as I talked to people at his funeral who just told stories about how you know, this guy, who was 26 years old, had touched their lives. These were people from his little town in northeastern Oklahoma where he grew up, and from around the world, really. See, Rich, Rick was the kind of guy who loved everybody and who everybody loved. And really, it was his death that made me once again reset and think about my future. So I hadn't forgotten that I really wanted to go away to college and experience campus life. So I quit my job. I cashed in my 401k. I paid the penalty to the IRS. And at age 28, I became a full-time student at Oklahoma State University. Now, it helped a little that my little sister, Deidre, you know, the one who never had to do dishes. I don't think she had to make her bed either. She was ready to transfer from the junior college to the university, so she and I went to school together. We moved to Stillwater, and um, I celebrated my 30th birthday as a full-time undergraduate student. <clears throat> After I graduated from OSU, I went to law school at the University of Oklahoma. I started dating Tom, who's now my husband. And for the three years I was in law school, we were up and down the turnpike between Norman, Oklahoma, where the University of Oklahoma is located, and Tulsa, where Tom lived and worked. Now, I did really well in law school. I was the managing editor of the Law Review. 
I was on the Dean's Honor Roll. I graduated number five of 217 students in my class. So I was really lucky. I got uh, summer associate jobs in Tulsa during my second and third year, and I got an offer from Crow and Dunleavy, a prominent Tulsa law firm, to start working when I graduated. I was all set to go to work when I graduated. Then, in January of my third year, Tom's job as a research chemist at Amico in Tulsa was eliminated, and he started a nationwide search for a job, getting an offer here. So we got engaged because we decided that that long distance thing with an even bigger geographical gap was probably not what we were interested in. So I moved to Chicago. I paid back the signing bonus that Crow and Dunleavy had given me. And I started looking for a first-year job here. <clears throat> now, I was really fortunate to get a job that very fall at a firm called Skadden Arps. Skadden is one of the largest firms in the world. And through contacts I made there, I moved on to an in-house counsel job at MCI and then to my current job at Equity Residential, where I've been for almost 20 years. So I'm in-house counsel at Equity Residential. And in my mind, it's the absolute best job for me and my talents and my interests. So, one might think that life is as straight and predictable as those lines on my dad's logbook or those creases that my mom put in his shirts, but it's really not. Life takes twists and turns along the way. Some of them are within our control, some of them aren't. But it's those curves in the road that create opportunities for us that we may never have imagined in our youth. I had no strong desire to be a lawyer. I had absolutely no aspirations to move away from my family in Oklahoma. But this is where I am, and I've been incredibly blessed along the way. So I think it's true what they say. When one door closes, another one opens. And we just need to be prepared to see that open door and take a chance by walking through it. Thank you. All right, so our next storyteller is Lauren Stanley, and she is the first youth to ever tell a story up here. And so we're really excited to have her up here today to tell her story nowadays. Would you please give her a warm welcome as she comes up? <laughs> All right. Um, nowadays, I can turn on my phone and compare myself to women I don't even know. Half of them are photoshopped, and the other half gets stuff done to make themselves look better. But no one thinks of that when a stunning picture of Beyonce is sprawled across their phone. And I mean, guys don't help either. Either they have unrealistic standards, or they're already taken. And there's not a lot of wiggle room in between those, so of course a 15-year-old boy isn't going to think, Okay, she's cute, but does she have a good personality? <laughs> the truth is, it can be a real struggle growing up in our modern world. It's hard not to compare yourself to others when it's that easy to do. Every time I look at my phone, there are new ways on how to improve yourself through diet and exercise. So if I'm scrolling through Instagram and it says, want a booty like Rihanna, of course I'm going to click on it, try the workouts for a week, and then remember how badly I want to stay consistent with that, as I'm sitting in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. 
There have definitely been long days filled with tears and constantly checking the mirror, and I know I'm not the only one. It's hard to love yourself when all you see are flaws that aren't even flaws, but since so many ads and websites have told you how to get a smaller waist or get rid of cellulite, and my all-time favorite, how to lighten your armpits, you end up convincing yourself you don't measure up. And while magazines have been haunting girls to be prettier and better for years, nowadays you can't escape it. The worst thing for me is to see my friends struggle with how they view themselves. I see them and I'm blown away by their beauty, but when they text me struggling with something that someone said or something they saw online, it hurts to see them believe it. If I could show them how they, see, how they look through my eyes, they would see how beautiful they truly are. Last year as a freshman in high school, we had to learn about arguments on either side of the political spectrum. Gender equality is a topic that came up. Never did I imagine that gender equality could be such a, touchy, such, a such a touchy subject, my God. The kids who didn't support it were calling the kids who did liberal losers. I was surprised because I assumed that everyone was as open-minded as I was taught to be. I remember feeling like I never wanted to say the wrong thing. And with that kind of an election last year, it was very easy to say the wrong thing. Most of the controversial things that Trump speaks about are things that do not affect him personally. Some of these things include, I love her upper body. She's certainly not hot, such a nasty woman. And much more, but only so much I can say in church. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> these things make it seem like it's okay to talk this way to women. And whether it's the 2018 or the 1960s, women are still being affected by words from men who are supposed to be our leaders. Last month, I went to the Women's March with my dad. We went more to see how it works and to see how people behave. It was colorful and inspiring, yet calm and moving. Many people were there in support of equality and not just women's rights. As we walked through, a lot of people stopped my dad and said, it's great to see men here. And it hit me then how lucky I am to have a dad who believes in equal rights. Of course, my mom would have been there, but she was at work. I'm happy to be raised in a house where everyone is treated equally when they walk through the door, a house where it's not unusual for a man to go to a woman's march and a woman to go to work. I know I've talked about a few different things, and I don't really have a set story, but that's because I'm growing up right now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the lessons and stories will come with time, but for now I need to say what I believe and say it loud, because I am the future. Um, I have one more thing to say, but I didn't have enough time to memorize this because of how recent it happened. But in light of the Florida massacre that occurred one week ago today, I would like to just say how I was so nervous to come up here and talk for like three minutes. But after listening to the speeches these other kids made, especially Emma Gonzalez's, she's, I, don't, I don't know if you heard it, but it was really good. Um, I realized how little this is. Not in a bad way, but just to put it in perspective. Last week, that could have been my high school and my friends and my teachers, but it wasn't. And I think we all need to keep this close to our hearts and think about how lucky we are that it didn't happen to us. This is a turning point, and as a high school student, I just want to say how brave they are for speaking up. And without knowing that this tragedy would happen, the end of my speech says, I am the future. And I want to say how real that is and how serious I am about that, because as you can see, a single day can change the future of America. Thank you. Takes guts to do that. <laughs> so
So thank you so much, Lauren. I really appreciate you coming and doing that. And, um, you know, when she came to me, I just have to say, you know, because uh, everybody, they kind of talk to me about, you know, here's what I'm thinking about doing, here's, here's what I want to do. I just want to say that when Lauren came to me and talked to me about it, um, you know, I was really excited for her to do this because, as she said in her story, you know, this is talking about growing up. And she very aptly said she's in the middle of that. But I think that one of the reasons why I was so happy for her to come and tell her story is because the truth is that the way she's growing up now is so vastly different from the way that many of us in this room grew up. It's not even close. And I think it's important to hear what's happening to the youth of this up-and-coming generation and what they're going through. And so, if you can, I just hope you take it to heart, because I think it takes a lot of guts to do that, and I'm really glad that you made that effort, and I'm really glad that you told people what you're going through now. Now, with that said, <laughs> I'm excited to invite up now Sue Lyon, and her story is, imagine any place so nice, they liked it so they named it twice. Come on up, Sue. Welcome her to the stage. Okay, though there will be an explanation for all this. Don't worry. Okay, so um, because of my title, can, does anybody have a guess about where I grew up? Walla Walla. Here's a, here's a little geography lesson for you. So here's Seattle. So this is the wet side of the state, and this is the dry side of the state. And Walla Walla is down in the southeast corner. It, um, it's about seven miles to the Oregon border and about 100 miles as the crow flies to Idaho. If you look on a latitude map and watch it all the way across the world, you'll see Walla Walla, when I was growing up, was wheat, peas, and sweet onions, and a little asparagus. Now it's one of the largest wine-growing regions in America. And if you look on latitude maps, you'll see that Walla Walla lies exactly where France also is, and that's one of the reasons why wine uh, is so very popular. There's more than 170 wineries in the valley right now. So it's, it was a very interesting place to grow up. Anyway, so, sorry, getting comfortable. Um, a little bit of a mystical place growing up. Even as a young child, I watched uh, Bugs Bunny and Wiley E. Coyote as he was getting packages from the Acme vacuum cleaning company from Walla Walla, Washington. I always thought that was so funny. Anyway, but um, growing up, um, I was one of six children. I have five brothers, or I had five brothers. One has passed, but I had five brothers. Many people would hear that to hear that I was the only girl and say, oh, you had to be so spoiled. My response is, I was tortured. <laughs> um, they, I, I think my brothers were up all night thinking of different ways that they could bring pain to me the next day. They would tie me to trees and turn a sprinkler on me and leave me there. We grew up in a very old home that had a creek running through it and had crawdads in it. They would pull crawdads out, pull the pinchers off, stick them in my sheets. They would lie underneath my bed, I not knowing it, and then pound up as I was falling asleep. I would go and, of course, complain to my mom, and my mom would always say, oh, you're just so sensitive, or you're just so this. I think she was just trying to really toughen me up. Um, 
Anyway, so they, they did. I think my parents did work very hard to kind of toughen me up, and I think I was a tough person. Okay, now explanation for this. When I was born, I was actually born with a club foot. My left foot, when I was born, had, I had no bone development at the top of my foot, so it was curled. My mom didn't notice it. A friend of hers noticed it when I was about six months old. And so during that time, my parents, be not having money for expensive doctors and things, chose to take me to a Shriners Hospital in Spokane, and I would go up every three months. That's about 190 miles away from Walla Walla, so it was a big trip. And I, as I grew up there, I would see them um, and the doctors there, and I started out when I first learned to walk. I had a brace on my foot, and then later I graduated to shoes that had very stiff heels. Well, one of the things that the local Shriners, and there was a very active Shriners group within Walla Walla, is that every year they would choose a young child who was visiting the hospital to be either a queen or a king for a special uh, football fundraiser. Well, I was chosen to be queen. So this is my, my robe that my mother made me, my mom was a great sewer, made me when I was in the second grade. This is not the original crown, but it, for tonight it works. So this is what this is all about. Um, I will say that uh, both my parents were, were very terrific and they treated us and they loved us and it was very evident that they loved all of us kids very, very much. But they had their own set of problems. My parents were married and divorced from each other twice. Um, once when I was in second grade and this, then they got remarried the end of fourth grade, had one more child and then divorced again. Um, also, my parents were what I would call beeraholics, um, and my dad, uh, for many years, drove produce truck to surrounding communities delivering produce and all that, and then he'd end up at Leo's, down, a local bar in town. My mom would go to join him and leave me to finish up dinner and to feed the kids and be there for, that, for, for the other brothers that were still at home. Um, so I, as I was growing up, I sort of had to learn that um, I, I had to learn some very big survival skills for my own sense of sanity as well as for helping especially my younger brothers. My two older brothers were getting older and older and, and moving on to their own things. Uh, growing up, I did not really attend church at much at all, although there was one summer my mother enlisted me in every VBS program in about seven different churches. <laughs> So I did do that at one time. And when I was in junior high, I did get involved with a small youth group at a Nazarene church, um, mostly because the pastor was cute and young, um, but kind of fell away from that. Moving on into high school, I, I was always very involved in sports, in volleyball, basketball, and track. And even though I had the club foot, I actually became a pretty good high jumper. And if you know, you always do the FAS, and you do it off your left foot. So, and I, I had some success with that and threw myself into that. Also throwing myself into high school, I did a fair amount of underage drinking, too. I had an older brother who was 21. He very much would happily go and buy me beer. So it wasn't until I was a junior in high school that I discovered Young Life. And Young Life made a huge impact on me. It really was the turning point in my life. I, I gave up the drinking and, and all that and just got very much more into school and to also into Young Life. Young Life taught me that, and, and this was all as a, a young teenager and all news to me, is that God had a plan for me. Really? Me? And that 
the, the plan for me was something very different than I thought it was going to be. So anyway, uh, getting very involved in Young Life and, and loving that and, and growing on, eventually I, I did go to a junior college for two years and then as I started searching for schools, there were a lot of very great universities in Washington State and I would go to one and I'd get there and the people I was supposed to meet wouldn't even show up. So finally I decided I wanted to go and visit Whitworth College. Whitworth College is a Presbyterian school in Spokane. Washington, and I arrive there, and I meet with the financial aid person. Now, of course, my parents did not have money for school, but I was one of those where I applied for everything. I had a BEOG and SEOG and all this other to try and help make it work. So I meet with them at the financial aid office, and the officer tells me that they're giving me this unbelievable amount of money, the most they'd ever given a junior transfer student. In the meantime, too, he also set up for me to meet the head of the history department, I was a history major, and the history department had came to me and he took me home for dinner. I mean, Whitworth is just that kind of a university where they really get involved in your students' lives. Um, uh, it, 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 Whitworth, I can't even begin to tell you as much about Whitworth and, and how, what a wonderful university. It's now a university when I went, it was a college, but now it's a university. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. And if you ever have students think that they want to have a very unique uh, experience, then Whitworth would be something they should consider. So after school, I moved to Seattle, and that is where I met Bill. And I won't go into details there, because there are some really example showing of God's grace on how I met Bill. And we actually had a very strong connection that we didn't know about until we met. But that's another whole evening. Um, <laughs> So mostly I just, I like to just sort of stop and talk about, I always think about this and, and God and what God's plan had for me and, and why me, why would he choose me to do this? And I think a lot of it, again, goes back to having the roots in young life and all that. And I was introduced to the idea of God having a plan for me and it just, it always stuck. I, that he cared especially for me and he had singled me out, again, why me, but me out to do more with my life than just to exist in it. Um, he wanted me to treasure my childhood, but he also wanted me to move beyond it and any other negative experiences that I might have had. Uh, he's the one who showed me true grace and what grace was all about. <sighs> anyway, so what I'd like to end with is um, Whit Whitworth's theme song, if you were to uh, have a theme song was Amazing Grace, and we sang it all the time while I was in school. So I just want to end by sharing some of the verses with you. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath, has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. All right, so for our last story this evening, we have Judy Hockenberry, and normally 
We reserve this just for uh, lay people, for, for you all who don't normally get to come up here. She's filling in because we had a last minute cancellation and I needed somebody to tell a story. And she actually came up to me early on and she said, hey, I got a great story for this. And I said, well, you're a pastor, so you can't do it. And then I found out that somebody was gonna cancel and I said, you still got that story? So I'd like to invite up to the stage, Judy Hockenberry. So, of course, by the time Alex told me that I could tell my story, I was like, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that anymore. <laughs> and after listening to the beautiful stories of these other women here tonight, I want to say that the first 22 years of my life, I was most privileged. And I want to thank my mom and dad for that. It was 1978 when I started to learn about real life. I was about to graduate from Augustana College with a Bachelor of Arts degree in social work. I was going to save the world, don't you know? Even in the 70s, the kind of the subtext given to most at least white middle class females was that the reason for going to college was to broaden your horizons, to get an education, but also to find Mr. Wright, that husband that was going to take care of you the rest of your life. Well, it was January of 1978, and I had failed <laughs> at finding the husband. I did not meet the man of my dreams at Augustana College. And that meant I had to figure out what plan B was going to be. Now, I was privileged, seriously, in that my parents did pay for my college education. I did not have to fill out scholarship forms or loan forms. No FAFSAs had to be filled out. And although I always appreciated the fact that I left school without any debt, I never fully appreciated it until I was a parent, filling out FAFSAs, filling out loan forms, and watching my children's school debt mount up. But as much as that was a privilege, there was a clear message with that. Four years of college, and then you're on your own. I don't know if they meant it as strictly as I took it. I was the firstborn, after all. Yes, Denise, that youngest sister. They get away with a lot more. <laughs> but I took it seriously. So plan B involved finding a job and figuring out how I was going to live on my own and independently support myself. I was again fortunate in that just about the time I was preparing my resume, one of the psychology professors on, at Augustana College approached me. He told me about a guy he was working with in the community and about how they wanted to establish a group home for adolescent boys. And in fact, they had just received a grant for $8,500 so they could hire a social worker. So there I was, my first salary, $8,500. But guess what? It included health care. <laughs> so I had a job. I was all excited. I was going to start work even before graduation. I set about finding an apartment. I'd lived in the dormitory all four years of college. I loved dormitory living. But now it's time to grow up 
and so I was going to find an apartment. I did. I found a little second floor apartment in a house that had just been converted. First floor was a bigger apartment. Upstairs was a really small apartment. And I talked to the landlord, and he was more than happy to let this nice, young, 22-year-old, responsible-looking person rent his brand-new apartment. So for $170 a month, I rented my first apartment. Then I had to buy my first car because I hadn't done that yet. So I started looking for, in the paper, looked at ads for cars, found a nice used Toyota Corolla, three years old, stick shift. Didn't know how to drive a stick shift. But the price was right, and the bank was willing to loan me the money. Hear this. Be Laura, Lauren, because it is so different <laughs> than what you're experiencing. But the bank was willing to loan me the money, even though I had no credit history, no credit whatsoever. And I started paying a three-year loan on that used Toyota Corolla for $78 a month. So grown-up life was going really, really well. I had a job, I had an apartment, I had a car. Oh, and my apartment included my heat and lights, so that made it easy. All I had to um, do was sign up for telephone service with AT&T, $20 a month extra if you called long distance. So there I am, ready to start my grown-up life. My mom helped me move into my apartment, I had a black-and-white 13-inch Motorola TV that my grandfather had bought me for my college graduation. I had an antique dresser that my parents had bought me for my college graduation. And then my parents bought me a little table with two chairs at an unfinished furniture store, and my dad finished it for me, and it was a lovely addition to my dining room. The rest probably came from their basement or from a friend's basement. But it was a great little apartment. And after my mom helped me set it up, she went back to Arlington Heights, and I started grown-up life in Rock Island, Illinois. And boy, was I excited. It was like I had everything I always thought I would have as a grown-up. After a while, I was working with the boys at the group home, Home Away From Home, it was called. We had about four or five boys in the home, although eight was our potential. These were adolescent males who were one step away from the juvenile justice system, and we were trying to interrupt their course towards the juvenile justice system. So they were living in our home, and I did my little social work thing with them. I learned how to write grants. Shortly into the beginning of my job, we realized that we were in violation of a zoning ordinance. So that meant we were going to have to go to the zoning board in Rock Island. So I began to learn about zoning and, and began to prepare my my uh, reports that, that the zoning board would need. For a while, it was all pretty sweet. I joined a church there in Rock Island. It was the, my first experience with an interracial church. There was a black preacher. I loved his dynamic sermons. And as you can well imagine, before I knew what happened, I was, I was uh, directing the children's choir. It was a little extra money to add to my whopping salary. I also became a licensed foster parent in the state of Illinois. It was something I had dreamed about doing since I was in high school. And here I was, a grown-up, so I could do it. I actually cared for four children during the fall of that year. Winter came to the Quad Cities, and 
I was a little lonely. I loved dormitory living. Now I'm living by myself. Most of my closest friends had graduated and come back up here to the northwest suburbs. I did have one close friend that was a senior at Augustana, and I also had a boyfriend at Augustana. I was still working on that husband thing. <laughs> so, um, but I, I learned that first winter the joys of owning a car without owning a garage. And I came pretty quickly to understand that if the weather person on the radio that woke me up every morning uh, told me that the temperature was zero degrees or lower, that I might as well not even try to start my car because it was going to need a jump. So I called my friend that was still at Augustana College. Her name was Mel. And I would call, and it got to the point where I'd call her at 10 minutes to 8 in the morning, and I'd say, hi, you know, no caller ID either. So, hi, Mel, it's Judy. I'll be right over. <laughs> Mal rescued me more than once that winter. As winter turned into spring, we began to anticipate our zoning board review. And so we got ready, and I was the designated spokesperson. I guess I had the most polished presence of the people I worked with. I mean, I would say that was true. And also, I think maybe they thought nobody would say no to a fresh-faced 22-year-old. So I did what I was supposed to do. I walked the neighborhood streets. I got signatures on petitions. I worked hard. And I thought, this is a no-brainer. Who wouldn't want to provide a home for boys about to enter the justice system? Who wouldn't think they needed a loving home, a place to work out and sort out their problems before they grew up and became lifelong criminals? Well, I found out pretty quickly that nobody wants that kind of thing in their backyard. I went to the zoning board, and we got through our first hearing. So we were jubilant. And we were set to come back the next month before the whole city council of Rock Island. Not a good scene. The newspaper cameras were actually there. I mean, Rock Island, it's a small city. And there were pictures snapped left, left and right, and I was cap captioned as tearful heart tongue, please, her cause. <laughs> And tearful I was. We were voted down. I felt abandoned. I felt like nobody cared. I felt like everything I'd been taught my whole life was a huge lie. Because the way I was raised was that if you went to school, if you got an education, if you did the right things, if you tried hard and worked hard, then everything was going to work out for you. And as trying as hard as I could to put all the puzzle pieces together, the puzzle just wasn't coming together. Needless to say, when we lost our zoning in March, we lost our funding, we lost everything. We placed the boys in foster care, and my mother told me that I should come home and look for a real job. I don't know if those were her exact words. I don't want to make her sound mean or anything, but that's what I heard. So I did come home and look for a real job, and I was fortunate. I had some connections in the insurance industry, and it was very quickly that I was able to find a job as an administrative assistant, secretary in those days, for an insurance agency in Evanston. I went back to Rock Island, I packed up my car, and I came home with my tail 
between my legs. I was sad, and I was angry. Everyone had let me down. My boyfriend had let me down because he didn't want to walk the streets with me and get signatures on petitions. My parents had let me down because they didn't prepare me for this kind of disappointment. The zoning board had let me down, and they were heartless. How could they turn these boys away? Everybody had let me down and disappointed me, but the worst thing of all was I had disappointed myself because I hadn't changed the world, not the way I thought I could. I came home and I gradually began to heal, and I gradually began to feel like not quite as much of a failure. I began to embrace a new kind of grown-up life, and looking back, I realized that that first year of social work, my first and last year of social work, was like the refiner's fire, preparing me for my true heart's work, the work of ministry. It showed me more than anything that you can survive disappointment, that you can be angry and survive, that you can be disappointed and survive, that you, can find, that you can feel hopeless and find hope again. That maybe was the biggest lesson, the hope that really can come out of hopelessness, because that's a lesson that has served me well in all of my work. Thanks for listening. Can I get one more round of applause for all of our storytellers tonight? So I wanna thank you all for coming out and for listening to these stories. Uh, as I said before, we're gonna have a reception out in the narthex, and uh, if you'd like to come and talk to our storytellers, and, and uh, I'm sure they would appreciate hearing from you after putting themselves out there in that way. Um, again, if you have children, you need to pick them up before you go and you speak to people in the narthex. Uh, our next storytelling night is actually going to be May 23rd. It's a little ways off. And the theme is lighthouse stories, stories of people who have been our guiding light. And so we'll see what people have to say at that next one. I'm looking forward to people who might volunteer their stories at that. So with that, I would say thank you for coming out. And uh, one more time, thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful evening, everybody. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.